Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicles Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Moira O'Neill and joining me on the show today are my colleagues Leonora Walters and Kate Bearley. We're also delighted to have a special guest in the studio. Darius McDermott is Managing Director at Chelsea Financial Services. In today's show, we're going to look at why investors may need a change in strategy for investing in the US stock market. We'll also examine how to choose between tracker funds and exchange-traded funds, which are both passive investments. We're going to discuss the case of an investor who has accumulated a whopping 125 holdings in just six years. And we'll give our verdict on the departure of star Asian fund manager Angus Tulloch. Investors usually use passive tracker funds to get their US exposure. We see that a lot in Investors Chronicles Reader Portfolio Clinic. And they use passives because active fund managers have traditionally found it difficult to add value in the US market. However, could it be time to swap your US passive funds for active? Kate Bearley has been looking at this. Kate, can you tell us a bit about the background to your piece and what you found out? Well, the the US, as you said, has been a place where active fund managers have found it quite hard to beat the benchmark. And so typically it's been a place that people have used passive funds. So I had a look and of the 114 funds in the Investment Association's North America sector, fewer than 20 managed to beat the S&P 500. So, you know, clearly you're paying quite a lot for an active fund or relative to passive and not getting the performance that you are from an ETF or a tracker. And we think that's really been because of a few things about the US economy. So, I mean, we've had this big round of QE and very low interest rates, which have kind of pushed up all equities. It's been very cheap for companies to borrow, buy back their shares. So we've had this kind of massive bull run in the US, which has, which has kind of lifted all boats, I guess. But there is an argument to say that that could be about to change because QE is coming to an end. The US recovery is kind of underway. And it might be that actually, and also when rates rise, might be that things turn around a little bit. And actually, we see some of those companies that have been kind of pushed up on a, on this tide of rising equities fall back a bit. And you might need to move from a growth investment style into value. So I mean, that's an argument to say that managers who focus on looking for value and looking at kind of company fundamentals rather than just following a kind of you know lifting share prices across the board might be able to add value and, and might be the ones to kind of win out over next year. And of course the, the index that most people will be following if they're in a passive US fund is this S&P 500 index and it's a market capitalisation weighted index of the biggest companies in the US so you know you're not going to find, be invested there in, in smaller companies or some more in, more, no. more interesting stocks in the, in the US market um, and, that, and those will be the ones that active fund managers are hunting for. Mm -hmm. Um, So there is a contrast there. Darius, what would you be holding for US exposure at this time? Yeah, I I mean, US is the one market where we actually are comfortable with passives. As Kate has already said, finding funds that consistently beat the S&P is quite difficult. The market is very stylistic. It's often value or growth favour for long periods of time. And if you're in the wrong style, it's on, well, it is impossible to, to beat that broader index. So passive, by all, 
all means fine for sort of, as, as you said, copying the sort of the S&P 500, getting exposure that way is fine. But more recently, we have managed to find a couple of active funds that historically have been run in the US but have now sort of become more mainstream in the UK where they're sort of almost style agnostic. So they're trying with stock selection and sector selection to, to beat that S&P 500 whilst admitting that it is difficult and none of them do it every year. Okay. Which funds um, have, have caught your eye then? What, what's, the, what's interesting? So we have a couple of funds that are rated. There's a Brown Advisory US Flexible Equity Fund. Brown historically have a value bias fitting into the theme that, that Kate mentioned. But this is a fund that they've actually set up to be more pragmatic not to have a value or a growth bias specifically. They're looking for the best companies. And actually, the strategy in the US has been going for over 20 years and has annualized with around 2% outperformance of the S&P over that 20 years. Again, not every year, but that's, I think, a so pretty not, handsome track yeah. record. And that is, of course, after their active fees. All right. I mean, 2% doesn't sound like a lot, but it, it's actually a lot more than other active managers manage to do in the US. A- absolutely. Yeah. As I say, it's the one area I've been doing fund research for sort of north of 15 years, and American funds is one area which we have struggled to consistently find because what you do is you get three years of growth markets you plump for a growth fund just as that market tilts there's another fund which is leg mason clearbridge us aggressive growth now it sounds like it's aggressive and it sounds like it's growth but again this is a strategy that's been running with the same fund manager for over 30 years and it does take quite punchy sector weightings. It's been very heavily in biotech over the last three or four years. But their turnover is astonishingly low. They, it's a big fund. They try and buy companies that they think are what they call in a secular growth and then really hold on to them. And that, again, has had a, a very good S&P beating index over a very long term. So it is hard to find good U.S. funds, especially given that stylistic bias that you get in the markets over there. That's a couple, I think, which you can put in your core basket as potential alternatives to S&P trackers. Mm. Kate, you're also looking at, so if you were going to stay passive, what kind of passives would be adding value going forwards? What, what ideas did you come across? So there's quite a few kind of ETFs uh, that track kind of indices that, that are anything other than market cap weighted. And so there's quite a trend in the US for share buybacks and ETFs which track those. And the very popular one is a PowerShares FTSE RAFI, which, again, is an alternative to traditional market cap weighting. It takes fundamental factors like revenue, cash flow and other things to to kind of look at companies with strong balance sheets. So it's almost doing like a a stock screen to find particular characteristics in the stock market that could give strong performance going forwards. Yeah, exactly. Okay, well, there's some interesting ideas there for the US and make sure you read Kate's piece because there are lots more ideas in that too. Continuing on the theme of active and passive, this week we've also been looking at the key differences between different types of passive funds. Now, these are usually... um, investors will look at exchange traded funds or index tracker funds and they are different beasts they but although they both aim to replicate the performance of a market index the question really is is how how you you choose between them and kate's been looking at that this week kate can you explain yes index tracker funds etfs they're similar in the sense both passive both tracking and index but etfs are much more like holding a stock than a than a passive, which is a mutual fund. ETFs trade throughout the day, so their price changes throughout the day, and they incur trading costs in a way that um, an index fund doesn't. It only prices once a day. 
So there are quite a few things to think about when you're choosing. So I've looked at a couple of the key ones. Obviously, cost is one thing that people think about when they think about trackers because both trackers and ECFs are very low cost and that's one of their kind of key appeals. And the costs have actually been coming down across the board, haven't they? We've seen quite yeah. a lot of competition in, in passives, both ETFs and trackers. And, yeah. you know, a few years back, it was quite easy to be charging uh, 1% a year for a, for a passive and would, that would look good in comparison with an active fund. Now, you know, it's much less than half yeah, you get percent. 0.07% yeah. some of the cheapest. <laughs> so, yeah, the, the passive price war, yeah. But... It's interesting when you actually look at cost because people often just think of that headline cost. So, for example, the 0.07. But when it comes to ETFs, you do incur these trading costs. So actually, in some cases, if you're planning on, you know, holding for a shorter time, then it can can be the case that actually it would be better to be in a fund with a higher um, ongoing charge because, in fact you know, you'll pay more when it comes to buying and selling from the spread, which is that gap between the what you bought it at and what you will sell it at. So that's something to think about. And the same is true of ETFs, which track quite niche indices or are quite small. Because of that, it means that the, the trading cost will be higher. So even if it looks, you know, more appealing on a cost basis, just on the ongoing charge, it might be that it's more expensive because it's very liquid or, or it's quite kind of targeted. So those are things to think about. And, and if you're worried about that, maybe go with the index fund. I think it, it also depends on whether you're investing a big lump sum in a tracker fund or you're doing regular saving. Darius, what's your, your view on that? Yeah, I on think that? Kate's point on cost is absolutely spot on. There's the sort of the headline AMC, annual management charge on an index, but what you actually need to be looking at is the sort of total expense ratio of both vehicles because they do have different ways of charging. The ETF charges more, uh, trades more, and hence will have probably greater incurred costs. Also, you have to be aware that when you're buying ETFs, you pay stamp duty and actually a dealing fee because they're traded like shares. But then they are much more flexible from a timely point of view. Mm. If markets dip intraday and you want to to take exposure, then the ETF is the uh, appropriate vehicle. So I think as much as cost is important, it is the time, you know, if you're, if you're dipping in and out of markets and probably an ETF is a, is, is a more suitable I think on on the costs, we also need to mention that if you're investing in a tracker fund, you also need to look, if you're holding it on a platform, there will be a a platform fee on top of the cost as well. So it is a bit of a minefield for investors, but you've got to check every little cost that is incurred along the way to work out the cheapest. Totally correct, yeah. Yeah. Shall we move on to the portfolio clinic? The chap we're looking at this week actually does hold quite a few exchange-traded funds in his portfolio, probably too many. In fact, Tim, who is only 39 and has been investing for six years, actually has a whopping 125 investments across his portfolio. And his portfolio is only worth £35,000. We were discussing this in the office this week. We think he must have been buying £50 here, £100 there. He really seems to have an addiction to buying. Uh, and if he carries on accumulating investments at this rate, he's, he's going to have more than 500 holdings by the time he's 60, which would be impossible to manage. So Tim has asked for advice on how to tidy up the portfolio, which we were relieved to hear that he wants to do that. And in the magazine, we give six tips for how he can think about tidying. Um, one was to re-examine the reasons for holding each investment and check that he's still happy with those reasons. He may not be. Uh, Another was to cut his losers. 
Um, one of our experts suggested that in terms of his direct shareholdings, he could focus on the larger companies. Uh, another said you must limit your direct shareholdings to 20 as a sort of discipline for investing because that's in, that's enough that most that's more than enough for most investors to um, track he could also swap his small company holdings for small cap funds um, so let the professionals manage the small company section um, there are also a few suggestions for for using active funds in key areas Darius, can I ask you what would you be your general tips for an investor who has accumulated too many holdings and wants to tidy it up? Yeah, I mean, you've sort of hit all the nails on the head. <laughs> He's got a buying problem and not a selling, um, <laughs> not a selling discipline. You have to ask yourself why you're buying a company. I see he has a number of mining stocks based in Canada. So if that's a theme you want to play and you have the expertise to investigate them, look at the companies on a company-by-company company basis and the time, I might add, then great. If not, buying a fund that where as a professional fund manager and probably a team of analysts all tracking those sort of stocks is undoubtedly going to be, even with active management fees, a, a better way because, you know, Tim has got an awful lot of shares and small quantities and he's got dealing costs. And when I review funds, there's not many funds you see with 120 stocks in it and these are people <laughs> who are doing that all day, every day. I found it difficult to know what themes he was trying to follow and he describes himself as low to medium risk. Well, clearly that's low to medium risk in an equity context and I don't think this portfolio represents that type of um, risk tolerance. It's full of small companies which are illiquid and just not any conviction in any of the holdings. Some of he's got 10 shares and 5 shares and that definitely needs tidying up. Maybe going with a small cap manager, something like Marlborough, Microcap, uh, these are famed small cap managers, and whilst you do have to pay active fees for good active fund management, their sort of long-term return more than justifies it. What do you think is uh, reasonable in terms of a portfolio? What number of holdings? If you're going to hold funds alongside direct shares... If you're a hobbyist we... investor and you actually take the time and you're buying stocks for whatever that reason might be because you like the theme or you think they're cheap, then I, I would think sort of 40 was a, would be an upper limit just because how can you possibly follow them? Even if it's your day job, as I say, lots of fund managers, you just can't cover that many stocks. So 40 would seem a, a very healthy ceiling, mm-hmm. um, especially if you've got some funds, investment trusts or some passive equities exposure around that. Okay, That's sensible tips there. Thank you very much. We're going to finish with the biggest fun story this week, which was actually the news that Star Asia manager Angus Tullock is stepping down from his fund, Stuart Investors Asia Pacific Leaders. Now, many investors might know this fund as what it was formerly known as, which was First State Asia Pacific Leaders Fund. And this fund has been in the Investors Chronicles top 100 funds for several years now. Um, and it's widely held and investors will probably be wondering what they, what on earth they should do now the manager's going to leave. So, Leonora, you've been looking at the story. What do you think the implications are? Well, I think um, before investors react, it's not just kind of like left it to drift we've got a new lead manager in and that's david gate who investors chronicle readers might know as 
the manager of Pacific Assets Trust, which is also an IC Top 100 fund and has been very successful beating MSCI Asia Pacific X Japan over one, three and five years, as well as um, in sector peers over three and five. So, I mean, saying first of all, all right, um, he's going, but they put in a very capable manager. Um, David Gate, he was also co-manager of Asia Pacific Leaders from earlier this year. So it's not like he doesn't know the fund and uh, it's not like he's not experienced. What maybe investors should take note of uh, is uh, over the coming months, they're actually going to slightly tweak the investment focus of Stuart Investors Asia Pacific leaders. Now, they say they're going to keep the culture, philosophy and processes in the company. Fair enough, the way they select stocks across all their funds, that's well and good. But over the long term, um, Stuart Investors, Asia Pacific Leaders, is going to follow a sustainability investment strategy. Now, what they mean by this is, is something similar to what is followed by Stuart Investors Asia Pacific Sustainability Fund. And this is investment in companies that should benefit from and contribute to sustainable development of the countries in which they operate. Now, I think people will be thinking, oh, this sounds like, you know, some really hardcore ethical fund. And it, it isn't like that at all, to be honest. We don't use negative screening, e.g., get rid of, you know, kind of like screen out certain sectors of stocks. I think we look at things more like, you know, the corporate governance of a company and what it's doing, which is actually probably probably quite important to do in uh, the emerging markets because um, there's, there's a lot of corruption, there's a lot of problems, so it's, it's quite relevant. What I think is even more interesting is um, Asia-Pacific Sustainability Fund has a tremendous performance record. It's beaten MSCI Asia X Japan Index, it's beaten its IA sector average, and it's actually beaten Asia-Pacific Leaders Fund over three and five years. Uh, part of it is because it's got a small mid-cap emphasis, whereas Asia-Pacific leaders hasn't. Nevertheless, it's done incredibly well, so I don't think investors need to be worried. I think the other important point to mention is Stuart Investors Asia-Pacific leaders actually follow some of that already. All the funds run by Stuart Investors, First State Investments, whatever you like to call them, actually do take some of these things into consideration. The Sustainability Fund, it takes it maybe a little bit more, but it's not that different. So I think um, just kind of summing up for the future of um, the Stuart Investors Pacific leaders, it's never good when a really good manager leaves. But we did run it along a team approach. The new guy has tremendous performance record. And although he's changing things slightly, it's actually going to go along with the strategy of a fund that has done really, really well. So I don't think Angus Tullock stepping back is is necessarily a, a disaster. Okay, so not not mm. a, not that much to worry about. Darius, you've downgraded the fund, haven't you? Well, so can you tell I, us what I, you think? I think Leonora's given an absolutely superb summary of the entire <laughs> position there. A couple of things just to, to add over the top. Firstly, Angus is not leaving the group, yes. uh, and he's still keeping the Stuart Investors Asia Pacific Fund. It's the larger Asia Pacific Leaders Fund that we're sort of focusing on today. And you're quite right, our sister fund ratings company, Fund Calibre, has downgraded it because there is this just very small question mark over the change in style. Leonore has rightly pointed out that David Gates' performance on sustainability is even better than Asia Leaders, but it's a much smaller fund with a mid and small cap focus. Asia Leaders is over 7 billion 
And when you take over a larger asset with a slightly different strategy, it does just bear a teeny bit of due diligence, which is what Funcalibur and Chelsea will be doing. Going to see David Gate, I very much expect that that rating will be reinstated mm-hmm. or upgraded to a buy or under the elite rating from Funcalibur. So we've just sort of taken our foot off the gas. There has been quite a lot of change in that whole team anyway. The first state, Asia and emerging markets business of the last decade has actually separated itself. Um, There's now a separate team, actually a separate company based in Hong Kong, which is under Martin Lau's stewardship. And then the sort of the Edinburgh branch, which is the Stuart Investors, which has also had the brand change in recent weeks, which may cause a bit of confusion for investors. But this is one of the go-to Asian funds. It's probably the largest Asia fund so we're certainly we're downgrading it in in the short term for just a period of pause to meet the manager to assess whether we think he can add that sustainability into a larger fund with clearly larger stocks so but downgrading would that mean that doesn't really mean sell the fund no we downgraded it it to a hold we absolutely think there is no need to panic i think it's always fair to disclose i am a holder of that fund i have not sold i will not sell um, Leonora pointed out that David Gates' track record is is exceptional. He also previously ran their India fund, which was exceptional. So we're very relaxed. We just want to meet the manager and discuss how that sustainability process in a larger cap fund will will, will be um, applied and whether actually he can keep that spectacular track record on Asia's sustainability and his investment trust uh, in, into a larger group of assets. I was looking at some of those first state funds, including this one, I think, have a soft closure on them, which means they're levying a bit of an extra charge if you want to get into the fund. Does that have implications for investors? So the first state Asia Pacific leaders, or now Stuart Asia leaders, is not soft closed and doesn't have the extra charge. A vast range of their other funds, including Asia Sustainability, is basically closed to new investment. They've removed it from most platforms, so you just can't buy it. Mm-hmm. And if you do try to buy it, then you do incur, I think, I wouldn't be surprised if it's been 4 or 5%, 5% initial fee. Yeah. Um, we can have a separate conversation about whether you want to pay those fees for that sort of excellence. Mm-hmm. But there's, there's just been quite a lot of change within the group. Some of it, I, I think, is about succession planning. Uh, Angus has been head of that team for a long period of time. Uh, this He's probably, 65 yeah, now, I mean, this is probably he? going yes. to be really a very sensible move. Yeah. Just say, just a little foot on the brake for us, but absolutely no selling. I, I don't think that would be a, a sensible thing. And as I say, I, I'm a, quite a big holder of that fund, and I have not sold myself. Okay, well, thank you. I think that's a very clear steer for investors in the fund. I'm afraid that's all we have time for today. So thank you to Leonora Walters and Kate Bealey of the Investors Chronicle. And thanks also to my special guest, Darius McDermott of Chelsea Financial Services. You can read more about investing in the US, passive funds and Angus Tullock's departure in this week's issue of Investors Chronicle. Thank you for listening.